Good morning, church family. Please join me in the reading of God's word from Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things we're going to do later on in our service is pray for one of our missions partners, um, the West, and we're so glad that they're here. Um, I am always intrigued, I've always been intrigued how the Lord has used people in foreign contexts and how people have been sent all over the world to advance the gospel and oftentimes in places where there is no gospel witness. And, and one of the things that's been most encouraging in my faith uh, has been missionary biographies. I love these stories, uh, especially kind of pioneer missionaries, people that have just for the first time gone into a place that there was no gospel access and have fought and sweat and blood and tears and brought the gospel to that context. One of those that's been particularly encouraging to me, if you've read this book, it's the story of John Patton. He, he was a missionary, this is him as an older man, um, but I mean, even Kevin's beard, I thought, I thought yeah, even Kevin's beard can't, uh, in, uh, can't touch that. But anyway, um, but John Patton, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, which is kind of near Australia. Uh, uh, Zanuatu is the kind of current name of the, the country. Um, but he went there in the 1800s and it had very little contact with the outside world. It was very poor people. Um, and uh, they were, they had a really bad reputation and, because, and for, for, for good reason. Uh, they were cannibals. Uh, and so they would eat human, human beings. Um, and so people said, don't go there. I mean, you know, there's other, there's other places that need the gospel. These people are really crazy. Don't, don't go to these people. But he went and he had an amazing ministry. Um, in fact, really that whole country was impacted by Patton and then obviously those that followed him uh, in their life. He was able to start churches. He was able to totally transform their business community. He really transformed the country. The gospel did a great work through him in that place. But, but it wasn't without challenges. <laughs> in fact, this is the book. There's so many challenges he faced. It was, it was very, very difficult. Um, and there's, there's one particular passage that's, that's very striking in the book. He, he's being chased by these people. They're trying to kill him. And they're going to kill him and they want to eat him. I mean, it, it's, it's everything that everybody warned him against is, is about to happen to him. And so to get away from the people, he climbs a tree, okay. So you can imagine, I mean, just imagine this. You're, you're, you are, there's no cell phone service, there's no satellite phone. It's the 1800s, you're totally far away from anything you've ever known. All these people are running around the woods trying to kill you. It's the middle of the night and you climb a tree to wait it out. But here's what he wrote about that experience. He says, I climbed into that tree and was left there all alone in the bush. He says, the hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharges of muskets, yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow. 
as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Stories like this have, have always intrigued me. If you're like me, I, I would say I grew up in a context where my understanding of God was if you obey God, if you're faithful to God, if you do what God says, you'll be really happy. You'll be blessed. The Lord will take care of you. You'll live a long and a happy life. Verses like Jeremiah 29.11 were a big part of my childhood. I, I learned it in the NIV. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Or maybe verses like Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. And I think I, I maybe at one point in my life kind of understood this as, oh, okay, well... In order to get the desires of my heart, i got to delight myself in the Lord. Uh, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine at Auburn, and uh, she had just broken up with her boyfriend. It was one of my good female friends, and she uh, had just broken up with her boyfriend, and, and she said, you know, Troy and I broke up, but I think it's because I wasn't delighting myself in the Lord. And so now... I'm just going to focus on that. I'm just going to delight myself in the Lord and I believe that Troy is going to come back to me, right? Because Troy was the desire of her heart and the way to get the desire of your heart is to delight yourself in the Lord. And, and I, I think I kind of understood a life with the Lord like this. You know, if, if God loves me, he's for me, he's going to make me happy, he's going to give me the things that I want, Right? Romans 8, 28, it was another verse that I kind of thought of in this context. I know that in all things God works for the good, those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And I, got to think that I thought that that meant that, that, that better things were going to happen to me if I, if I loved the Lord. So if I didn't make the team, it was because a better team was going to come and, you know, and offer me a position. Or if I didn't get this opportunity, it was because a better position. Or if my girlfriend you know, broke up with me because an even prettier girl was about to go out with me. So if bad things happened, it was only because like a better thing was coming along because I loved God and, and I was trying to follow him. And, and God certainly wanted me to be happy. He, he wanted to give me the desires of my heart, right? And that's why stories like Patton's story are so interesting to me because here is a man who is most content, most joyful, most present with the Lord, not after the trial, but actually during the trial. That's when he found the most joy, the most contentment with the Lord. If you've been with us the last three weeks, we've been in a series called You Have Heard It Said. And we're looking at phrases that you've heard said. You've heard said in popular culture, or maybe you've even heard said in the church. And this week we're looking at this idea that God just wants me to be happy. I, I know God just wants me to be happy. And this can, of course, manifest itself in a number of different ways. But, but here's the logic. 
I know God loves me, and therefore he wants me to be happy. And so if I have a desire, right, if I want something, then surely that's good. Surely God wants that for me. If I, if I have this desire, it, it must be right. Because why would God, if he wants me to be happy, keep me away from my desires, keep me away from the things that I really want? God just wants to be happy. And therefore my desires must be good. But is that right? <laughs> Is, is that what the Bible is trying to tell us, or is that just Cheryl Crow? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Or maybe James Taylor, if it feels nice, don't think twice. If God just wants to be happy and my heart wants something, if God's really good to me and really loves me, then I should be able to follow my heart. Any children of the 80s, listen to your heart, Roxette says. There's nothing else you can do. And we kind of laugh at this, but, but this kind of listen to your heart or follow your bliss kind of thinking, it can really guide how we understand the world, how we understand God, how we interact with God. It can really guide our understanding of our relationship with the Lord. God has given me these desires. If they, if they weren't right... Then, then why would I have them? Why, why wouldn't I just be able to pursue what makes me feel comfortable? Because after all, God just wants me to be happy. So how are we as Christians to understand this? How, how do we make sense of this? Because something we see in Scripture that's certainly true, the covenant people of God, God's people, He does love, He does bless. He does want to be happy. But right next to that... God's people often have to endure great suffering. The people that we know God loves have to endure these great trials. Their, their faithfulness is often tested. We've obviously seen that story not just in the Bible, but all throughout church history as the story of John Patton just illustrates. This guy who gave up everything, right? I mean, he goes to this place, he's trying to serve the Lord, and yet he suffers greatly in the context of that. And, and the truth of the matter is, is, we don't have to look at the Bible or church history. We can just look around in the room. How about some of you? Doesn't God love me? Doesn't he want me to be happy? Well, then why am I dealing with this? Why, why am I suffering through this? Why do I keep losing here? Why hasn't God answered this prayer for me? Why hasn't God done this for me? I've been so faithful to him. Why isn't he? Can anybody identify? With that, and, and it's very easy in that context to begin questioning the goodness of God, questioning the love of God. And so as we think about the question, I think this text answers three very important questions for us. First, what is the nature of Christian happiness? Number two, what are the means of Christian happiness? And then number three, what is the security of Christian happiness. Let's look at the nature of happiness. That's a great question to ask. The nature of Christian happiness. What is happiness? Right? Yeah, Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. We, we recognize these things to be given by God, endowed by our Creator. Self-evident. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all recognize that, that everybody has a desire to be happy. What does that mean? What is happiness? A few weeks ago, I read a passage from the psychology of money. 
And, and that book says that to be happy is when you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, for as long as you want, with whoever you want. That's, that's happiness, freedom, to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, as long as you want. But is that, is that happiness? Or, or is there maybe something deeper going on? And I think this text says that there is. Let me read verse 1 and 2 again. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's interesting when you talk to people about happiness. Usually a few things come up. I've got a little list here. The first is this sense of like justification. Right? What, what am I doing that justifies me? Right? Uh, I took a little plane trip this week and I watched the old movie The Natural on it. The story of Roy Hobbs. He was going to be the greatest that ever was. And when he walked down the street, everybody would say, there's Roy Hobbs, the greatest to ever play the game. And that was going to make him happy. Right? He had this goal. I'm going to be justified. I'm going to do this thing. And that's what's going to make me happy. In fact, I even had a conversation just this week with a guy who said, I want to make this amount of money. I got I got with this amount of money in my bank account and then I and then I will be happy. It's justification. People talk about this way. And it may not be something so concrete like that, but it may just be I want to be a success. I want to prove myself. I want to do something that's worthy. Another thing that people talk about is relationships. I mean, this is certainly central in people's conversations about happiness, right? My marriage, my friendships, my children make me happy. Another thing people talk about is just having peace. I want to have peace. I want to be at peace with myself. I want to be at peace with other people. Maybe I want to be at peace with God. And a lot of this is wrapped up in hope, right? A lot of times when people talk about happiness, it's I'm going to do this. I'm going there. I'm going to be there. I'm going to get married. I'm, I'm going on this vacation. I'm so excited because I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. There's a, there's a hope oftentimes involved with happiness. What's interesting about this text is that actually this text grabs at all of those ideas. And, and Paul is kind of reformulating it. We've been justified by faith. He's saying, you want to be justified? You want to be really justified? Well, real justification is not in making $10 million or in becoming the base, biggest baseball player ever, the best baseball player ever. No, real justification is in knowing God. How about that? What if you could know God? What if you be, could be forgiven of all your sin? What if you could have an inheritance that's imperishable, that's eternal? What if you could live forever with God? You want justification? You want to you know you count? You want to know you don't have to prove anything? That's justification. And that's what the gospel offers. He often talks about being reconciled with God. We have peace with God. Again, what about relationship? You want real relationship, Paul's saying? You want a relationship that really matters, that will really satisfy you, that won't let you down? You want to be in a relationship with somebody that you can always depend on, that you can always trust? You want to be in a relationship with somebody that's always wise and good and whole? The gospel offers a relationship with God. How about that? And if you have this right relationship with Him, then that informs all of your relationships. It informs your marriage. It informs your parenting. It informs your friendships. It informs everything. Paul says, well, what about peace? Well, the gospel invites us to peace. You want to have peace with God? Well, you can know God. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You can be justified by faith, this, this perfect peace that comes through Jesus. And that know that in any circumstance, God could be with you. This is the peace of the Lord. This is the peace that 
passes all understanding. It's not that we don't go through hard circumstances. It's that in those circumstances, God is with us. When I was uh, a kid, my class took a field trip to a cave. We were going to, I was probably six years old, and we were going to go to a cave for a field trip. And it was right around the time, you know, some of you guys are old enough to remember this. It was right around the time that there was this little girl in Midland, Texas that had fallen into a well. And it was big news. And they, was, her name was Baby Jessica is what everybody called her. And they had to get her out of the well. And, and I remember I was seeing this story. It was on the news every night. And it was right around the time we are supposed to take this field trip to a cave. And I didn't know much about caves. But I knew that they were a lot like wells. And I knew that kids could get stuck in them. And so I started telling my parents, I don't want to go on the field trip. I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to do that. I was terrified of the field trip until my dad said, you know, I was thinking about being a chaperone on that field trip. And all of a sudden, instantaneously, I still remember this, instantaneously, all my fears of the cave totally went away. I wasn't afraid of the cave at all. Now, nothing about the cave had changed. The cave was still the cave. But I knew that my dad was not going to let anything bad happen to me in a cave. That's the peace of God. That's... Paul is saying here, you've been justified through faith, you've been reconciled to God, now the peace of God is with you. And finally, hope. What about hope? Well, you know, we can all look forward to going on a nice vacation or, you know, maybe even getting married or having children. But Paul's saying here, no, this is, this is the hope that satisfies. This is the hope that's real. This is the hope that will never disappoint you. This is the hope that won't let you down. It's the hope of the victory of God. And all of our anxieties and sicknesses and pain and suffering will one day be swallowed up in the victory of Jesus and be greater and more glorious than ever. Christians live by that hope and are guided by that hope. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He, he, he's anchoring this, you know, he's anchoring identity, who we are, our pursuit of happiness, if you will. Not in us achieving some goal or not in us being in some certain relationship, but of, of us knowing God in the gospel. He says, if you found that, then you've really found happiness. <laughs> That's where happiness is. That's the nature of happiness, is that you could know God in Christ. That you could be reconciled to God, that your sins could be forgiven, that you could have his perfect love, his peace, his hope. And it's a kind of happiness, it's a kind of joy, it's a kind of satisfaction that isn't fake, that lasts. You know, I would ask that question of happiness. What good is it if it's, if it's fake? <laughs> if it's an illusion? You know, we all run to certain things to make us happy. But are they real, right? Are they real? Are they, are they centered in something that lasts? Are they real? What good is happiness if it's fake happiness? What's good is it if it's just an illusion of happiness? You know, we see this playing out. In front of us all the time. You know, there's a lot of, we live in a very illusionary world. <laughs> we live in a world that's like great at faking things. But, but is any of it making us happy? Is any, is any of it really satisfying us? You know, the person that spends time on the screen rather than in real human relationship. We, and again, these are, these are statistics. They're more prone to be depressed. They're more prone to be sad. Obviously, the person that doesn't restrict their diet, that eats whatever they want to eat, they're more prone to be in bad health. 
the person that's more prone to quit something and not stick with something, even in a difficult situation, is more prone to sadness or depression. The person who has more, many sexual partners, the person with many sexual partners is often prone to sadness and depression. Why is this? Well, maybe it's because we were never intended to just be a slave to our appetites. Maybe it's because we were never intended to just do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. That's not happiness. That's just an illusion. And, and we live in this illusionary world where it's incredibly easy to be deceived. It's incredibly easy to give yourself over to something that has the promise of happiness, but it, it never really will satisfy. You know, my kids have gotten into this show, I don't know if you all seen this, called Is It Cake? Anybody know this show? Is It Cake? It's a show on Netflix, and basically what it is, this is where we are in American entertainment right now, but what it is, is there's five objects, there's like five rubber duckies, there's five hamburgers, there's five shoes, and one of them is cake, right? So you have to guess which one is cake or a shoe. Now, the thing about it is, is these cake makers are amazing. It's actually kind of entertaining. You're like, how do you make a cake that looks like a taco, you know? And, uh, you know, these people really have trouble trying to figure out which one is actually cake. The point I'm trying to make here is, look, we live in an age where we can make everything look good. <laughs> but a cake shoe doesn't do you much good if you want to go on a run or play basketball. It's just an illusion. And we live in an age where our already susceptible hearts can easily be deceived. And the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart, the heart, listen to your heart. Well, the, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, that's a question. Are, are the things that you're going to for happiness real? Are you being deceived? Are they just a fix? Is that desire you have to... Is it being created by some sort of illusion or are you trusting God who brings real justification, real love, real peace, real hope? You're right before this, the prophet says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But then he says, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Whose trust is in the Lord. He, he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots into the stream. It does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. I love this. It doesn't say that heat or the year of drought will not come. It's just saying that the man who trusts in the Lord and not in himself in the year of drought, when the heat comes, won't dry up because he's anchored in something that's real. He's anchored in something that lasts. He's anchored in something that truly can satisfy him, namely the Lord. He's anchored in the thing that you were designed to be anchored in. You know, last week I referenced the movie Forrest Gump, but just to stay on 90s movie references, this passage this week made me think about the old movie, The Matrix. Now, some of you may not have seen that. It's kind of old now. But it's a, it's a movie where uh, it's kind of a dystopia, future dystopia. But it's a, it's a movie where basically computers take over, machines take over the world, right? But they need humans to kind of keep running. And so they, they 
put these humans in this like illusionary coma where our, our minds are just being fed, you know, these stimuluses that make us think that we're in this real situation, but we're not really. It, it's kind of about the metaverse, even though it's not, you know, just watch it and you can see. But anyway, so, but there's some humans in the matrix that figure out what's going on. They realize, oh my gosh, these machines have taken over. And so they start this resistance movie. They start to kind of try to fight back against the machines. But it's, it's very hard because the real world that you have to live in if you are out of the illusion has grown cold. It's grown dark. It, it's, it's grown very tasteless. And so it's hard for them to keep this resistance up. There's a very famous scene though where one of the characters that was in the resistance has basically had enough. And he basically says, I'm just going to give myself over to the illusion. There's this famous scene, he's sitting at dinner, he's, he's sitting there with one of the machines and he's there at this steak place and he's got this beautiful steak and a glass of wine and somebody's playing the harp and it's this amazing scene and, and he says, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it's juicy and delicious. And then he puts the juicy and delicious bite of steak in his mouth. And he says, after nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. And he abandons the resistance force. He chooses the illusion because it's nice. It makes him feel happy. It makes him feel good for a moment. And, you know, I, I want to say this. At some level or another, this is the decision that you and I are making every single day of our lives. You know, you're going to face pain. You're going to face hardship. You're going to face loss. E even, even in your best moment, <laughs> there's going to be a little sorrow in your heart. And when you face loss and when you face loneliness and when you face discouragement and when you've been let down and when somebody's cruel to you, you, you will automatically, I want you to hear this, listen to me, you will run to something for comfort. You just will. You, you're, you're, that's a reaction. You're, you're, your body will go over here and you'll re-remind yourself, okay, I really am somebody. I really am special. You'll run to something to assuage the pain that you're feeling. And so much of what you will be tempted to run to in this deceitful and illusionary world is an illusion. <laughs> it may make you feel happy for a time, but it's not real. It's not lasting. It's, not, it's, it's never going to really bring you joy. This is why workaholics exist. Because there's pain in the world. The workaholics exist. Why? Because the, those people got hurt. Something hurt them. Maybe they realized they weren't as good of a dad as they wanted to be. Maybe their marriage is not as good as... And, and rather than working on that, rather than embracing the pain, they run over here to work because work tells them you're good, you're important, keep working, we need you. This is why serial dating exists, right? Because real relationships are hard, but if you can just kind of date one person after the other, it's fun, it's exciting, and then move on. It's why pornography exists. Because there's pain in the world. And, and, and you're going to run to something to assuage that. But here's the deal. Is it an illusion? Is it something that's actually going to bring you confidence and victory? And, and it doesn't just have to be sinful things. It can be good things. 
It can be experiences. There's some, some of you, you may be just running from experience to experience to experiencing because you're hurting and you're just trying to say, let me remind myself that my life is awesome. What do you do in the face of loss and pain and suffering? We can run to all sorts of things to cover the pain. What Paul is saying here is, look, you can either cover the pain and suffering and act like it doesn't exist, which is an illusion, or, and this is the amazing part of this passage, he says, or you can let it do its work. And that brings me to the next point, which is the means of Christian happiness. What I'm about to tell you is fascinating. Look at verse 3. So not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who he has given to us. What Paul is saying here is that real Christian happiness... This kind of powerful happiness, this strong, lasting, satisfying happiness can actually and does actually grow when we suffer. And when we suffer, that produces in us an endurance and a character and a hope that won't disappoint. I I want you to hear how different this is. The world says the way to happiness is to have all of your desires immediately met. What this is saying is that the way to happiness, the way to real peace, real rich happiness is actually to not have your desires immediately met. I want you to get that. The world says happiness, have all your desires met right now, immediately. This actually says that no, real happiness, the kind of happiness that won't disappoint, that really lasts, actually really happens when all of your desires aren't immediately met. And we just start a little C.S. Lewis course. It's going on right now over in the uh, collective. But C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this. He, he has this concept that he writes about called Zainzut. It's a German word, Zainzut, which means this like unfulfilled longing. Zainzut, this un- unfulfilled longing, this, this longing that is unmet, this longing that's not quite fulfilled. He says the longings which arise in us, this is an interesting passage, let's listen closely. He says the longings which arise in us when we fall in love, we first fall in love, or we first think of some foreign country, or we first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, No learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of that which would be called ordinarily unsuccessful marriages or unsuccessful holidays or unsuccessful learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that moment of first longing which fades away in the reality That's a fascinating passage. Okay. It's obvious when you're hurt, when you've been let down, when somebody's been cruel to you, there's a longing, there's a pain, there's a sorrow that exists in your heart. But what Lewis is saying here, and this is fascinating, is that even in the best things, even in the best marriage, even in the best job, even in the best vacation, There's always a little bit of sorrow in your heart. 
let me go ahead and break it to you, okay? For those of you who never realized this, you've bought into the illusion of the world that says, oh, if I just had more money, I could get rid of that little sorrow in my heart. If I could uh, just be this successful, if I could just, you know, marry a man that's awesome, I, I get that little sorrow in your heart, th then it would all go away. I just, let me just break it to you. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. This is one of the best things you'll ever hear, though. On this side of glory, on this side of being with the Lord, there's, there's, if, if, if your cup is full of life, there's always, a little of it's always, it's going to be sadness, it's going to be sorrow. And that's okay. That's, that's the result of living in a fallen world. That's the result of living in uh, an age where we're not fully with the Lord. It's a, it's a result of living in an age where sin still exists. And so Lewis says, okay, there's three ways to deal with this. The first person always blames the thing. I married the wrong girl. I took the wrong job. If I, if I had just become an architect, you know, then I'd be happy. He said the second person becomes a cynic. They say, well, nobody's happy. You can't be happy. Yeah. Life's a sham. But he says the third way is the Christian way. And that is to realize that unmet desires are actually pointing to something. They're, they're, actually, they're actually the map that shows us where true happiness is actually found. He says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such thing as water. Men feel sexual pleasure. Well, there's such a thing as sex. But if I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. What Lewis is saying here is this little sorrow that exists in your life. And beyond that, particularly suffering and sadness and loss. They exist for a purpose. They remind us of the real thing. <laughs> they remind us of the Lord. That's actually why. So the means of Christian happiness, hear this. This is amazing. The means of Christian happiness is actually sorrow. <laughs> it's actually suffering. It's it's actually, it's actually disappointment. Those are the things that, that pull back the curtain. Those are the things that pull us away from the illusion. Those are the things that point us to the thing, namely the Lord, that will truly satisfy. Augustine's Confessions, if you've read that book, it's his autobiography of the great church father, and I'll summarize it in a sentence. He says, I tried sex, I tried success, I tried education, and I found out this. That my soul is restless unless it rests in God. And you see, suffering reminds us of all of this. Suffering pulls back the curtain. Suffering actually points you to the Lord. It, you know, it's very rare that you meet somebody, somebody that says they really grew in their dependence of the Lord when things were great. It's like, man, my business was killing it. My relationships were awesome. And man, I was just so dependent on God. No, it's usually the opposite. It's usually in sorrow, in heartache, in pain when you're sick. It's times when sin is exposed. It's, it's in times of financial distress. 
in those moments, the illusion is removed. And we can see who we really are. We can see how much we need Jesus. That's why Paul says suffering produces an endurance. And this endurance produces a character. And this character produces a hope. Not just a hope, the hope. The hope that won't disappoint us. And I want you to hear this. This, the, the quicker you get, this is the whole Christian life. This is Christianity. It, it, the quicker you get this, the quicker you'll understand what Christianity is. You know, Luther said, Martin Luther said, that all of Christianity, the entire life of a believer is one of repentance. And, and what he meant by that, what he really meant by that is the entire life of a believer, the entire Christian life is one of turning away from yourself and turning toward the Lord. It, what he meant by that is really what Jeremiah said. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. The entire Christian life is one of repentance and faith. Turning away from your sin, turning away from desires that are not of the Lord and turning to God to fill you, to give you justification, to give you peace, to give you love, to give you hope. And if you find this, then you can be like John Patton who's in the tree being chased by cannibals and everything in his life is a wreck around him and he can say, never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw near to me and speak more soothingly to my soul. But you see, what is the means of true Christian happiness? It's, it's dependence on God. What is the, how do we get it? We actually get it through suffering. That pulls back the curtain for us to see the world rightly. And so the last point, what is the security of this? How do we stay in this? And here's the great promise of the text. Look at verse 5. It says, hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The way to find joy, the way to find true happiness is to look to the Lord. But how do you keep looking to the Lord? Right? How do we endure in faith, especially when we're suffering, especially when we're, we're uh, discouraged? How do we keep from looking toward these other illusionary distractions that are all around us all the time? And the answer Paul gives here is the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given you this gift, the Holy Spirit, to guide you, to comfort you, to help you. The third person of the Trinity, this amazing comforter that indwells the life of a believer. And the way that the Holy Spirit works, I just want you to say this, the way the Holy Spirit works is through means. The Holy Spirit works through his means. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is he gives us these little signposts, like this right here. This is so important. I'm so glad you're doing this. In a very real way, we together are acting out the kingdom of God. Here the saints are gathered for the worship of the Lord. There's a very real sense where the Holy Spirit uses this means, the means of worship service, to remind you that you were made for the kingdom of God. And that one day you'll be with him. And that one day you'll, you'll be with God, surrounding his throne with all the saints of old. That, this little worship service, as dinky as it is, is reminding us of that. The Holy Spirit uses his word. I can't tell you how many times that the word of God preached. Or the, when I've read the word of God, and all of a sudden, man, the Lord has just met me. Even in discouragement, even in loneliness. And I've remembered who I am as a child of God. I remember how loved I am by God. My soul's been restored. I've found joy in the Lord. The Holy Spirit uses the people of God. Again, I can't tell you how many times. 
God's used, the Spirit of God's used a friend to correct me, to encourage me, to just be there for me in the time when, oh, I so needed, I needed the Lord to help me endure in faith. And he, and he, and he did through his church, through his people. Don't you see? The Spirit uses means. The Spirit uses means. And, and, and one of the means that he uses, and I just want to close with this, are the promises of God. For the person that's here that you are in the sorrow, you're in the pain, you're in the distress. This verse came to mind this week and I just want to read it to you. Hear this promise of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, of the good, of the faithful. But the Lord delivers them all. And right after that passage, I'd forgotten about this, but then I read the passage and right after that passage, you know what it says? It says he keeps all of his bones. <laughs> Not one of them is broken. And you kind of read that and you say, well, okay. Encouraging verse. I'm glad my bones are in good shape. Well, what that is, is it's actually a reference to Jesus. It's one of the prophecies that was fulfilled in the cross that none of his bones were broken. It's, we can read this now, Psalm 34, and be reminded of our Lord. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's near to the crushed in spirit and he delivers them all. And we can know, you know who else has been brokenhearted? He's been brokenhearted. He's suffering. You know who's really suffered is our Lord. You, you ever been lonely? You're lonely right now. You know who's experienced cosmic loneliness, the greatest loneliness forsaken by God? Our Lord. Are you humiliated? You know who's experienced the greatest humiliation? It's our Lord. Don't, don't you see who Jesus is? He's not a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He's one who in every way has endured this suffering, these pains along with us. But he endured. He endured in faith. And now he is enjoying the fullness of God's joy, of God's happiness, of God's kingdom. And as we look to him and as we stay faithful to him and as we continue in him, so will we. You have heard it said that God just wants to be happy. But I say unto you, God wants you to be truly happy. Not just to be a slave to your appetites, but to be a son or daughter conformed to his character and through suffering, yes, through suffering to experience his ultimate joy. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use this word today to build your church, to free us from the illusionary deception of this world that says happiness is here and happiness is there and comfort is here and comfort is there and that we would be the kind of people that are anchored fully in the Lord and our joy would be fully in Christ and our sense of love would be fully in the Lord, our sense of peace would come from you, Lord, our, our sense of hope and that even in suffering, Lord, 
rather than running to these things that we feel like might assuage us, we would just let the suffering do its work as we look to you. We would endure the hot sun of drought as our roots stay anchored in the stream of God. And through that, Lord, you would produce fruit in our lives that you use us. We'd be faithful. We wouldn't disqualify ourselves or ruin ourselves, Lord, that we'd be faithful to you. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. As we look to Jesus, the one whose ultimate trust 